Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Wise men follow him. They rose again. Wise men follow him. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ 94.7 in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. Today is Saturday, May 16th. 2015. The weather today is uh, partly sunny, high near 64. Calm winds becoming south 5 to 10 this morning. So far, the wind is still calm. And uh, tonight, showers likely, mainly after 4 a.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 48. South wind 5 to 8. Chance of precipitation 60% after 4 a.m. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch. Dampen things down. Just keep the dust down for the four-wheelers. Sunday, chance of showers before 3 p.m., mostly cloudy, high near 62. Light and variable, becoming east around 6 p.m., 6 miles an hour in the morning. Chance of precipitation Sunday, 50%. New precipitation amounts less than a tenth of an inch. And Sunday night, mostly cloudy, low around 44. East wind, 5 miles per hour, mile per hour, becoming calm in the evening. And Monday, mostly sunny, high near 67. East wind, 5 to 7, becoming south in the afternoon. It's supposed to be a good week. Chance of showers a few times, but basically it's going to be a warm and sunny week. Nice spring. Nice spring week. Good time to get out and do your chores. Black flies aren't too bad yet. There's a few out. Gas price is two fifty three in Portland, two forty seven last week, so she's up four cents. Gas price is two ninety three in Portage, same as last week. Forty cents a gallon more in Portage than it is in Portland. The diesel price is two seventy nine in Auburn. And 269 in Scarborough. Now, that's you know 90 cents a gallon uh, difference in diesel. So it pays to shop around. Diesel prices are all over the place. You know, I haven't seen diesel price down at 279 in a while. But there are several reasons for that. Uh, one of which is diesel comes out of the same component of a barrel of oil. 
as jet fuel. And the airlines are still running their flights, but they're running with fewer passengers. And fewer passengers means less fuel. So they, uh, people just aren't traveling as much. And there's, I keep throwing this number out there, and people are starting to realize that we've got 93 million adults in our country not working. And the, the apologists, the people that apologize for this phenomenon, is that say that, well, you know, we've got some people who are in college, and we've got some moms that stay at home moms, and we've got, you know, we've got people that will never be employed because they're disabled. Yeah, that's true. But there's still a whole lot more of those 93 million people who aren't working that would like to work, even part-time. I mean, they need to bring in some money. Those 93 people, 93 million people, aren't starving to death. They're, They're sustaining themselves, or being sustained, I should say, by society. In one way or another. Yesterday, I went to Lincoln and uh, picked up a load of food for the food cupboard. And that's something I do a couple of times a month and pick up uh, from the supermarkets. And and, uh, Walmart is going to kick in next year. Starting in January, Walmart's going to provide some... uh, some food items for people. And the number of food pantries is actually declining, the total number, as the state cracks down on them. We had a a family in the town of Wynn that ran a food pantry for 25 years out of their house. And low-income people would, would come and get food to sustain their families, same people every week, oftentimes. Some people would go in and just they feel terrible about going in and getting free food because they've never, ever taken charity before. And it, for them, it's heartbreaking to need to go in there and get, get food. And the food that I picked up at the supermarket was day-old baked breads baked goods, you know, and artisan loaves of bread, I mean, really high-quality stuff, but it's, it's it's about to expire, and they'll, they'll give it to somebody rather than, you know, send it off to the hog farmers. So, and we get vegetables that are, that are, you know, not the freshest. You got carrots or green beans, and they're just, they're not as, as crisp as they were, when they were first brought to the store, they make great soup. You know, cut the don't even peel the carrots; just wash them off and chop them up and put them in soup. It's good food. So, but it's an eye opener for me because I've never done that. I've never brought food to the food cupboard before, and I've got a client that sends me fruit in the winter time from California or Florida, and I'll get a big box, a large cardboard box full of the just the top-of-the-line, most beautiful 
ruby red grapefruit or oranges that you can just you know just peel with your fingers and they peel right off and they're the sweetest biggest oranges I ever saw we can't eat all that stuff it's just my wife and I and so I'll take there are either two or three layers of this fruit in a large cardboard box and I'll take one or two layers or one and a half layers for us they will use up before they begin to dry up and and uh and I'll take the rest into the food cupboard. Boy, I tell you, that's popular. And there, people are quite grateful to receive that. January, February, and March, each year, I get these cases of of fruit from a from a, a very satisfied customer. I was able to help out, and he uh, bought 480 acres of land. Still, people can do that. Lots of people. And I wish I had a dozen farms to sell. Small 25, 50-acre farms with a house and a barn, some open ground and some patch of woods and a water source, either a well or a brook or a spring. People want that. A lot of people want to leave the cities and come to Maine. And according to the FBI, Maine is the safest state. Per capita, we have the lowest crime rate of, of violent crime. Assault and battery, murders, uh, breaking and entering, burglaries. We've got the lowest crime rate in the nation. We're a big state, and we're scattered out all over the place. So in any one community, they have a really low, low crime rate. And then you have areas down in the cities where you've got, you know, dense populations of of people with no regard for the law and you have a lot of crime there. I mean you park your vehicle, go into a store, buy something, you come back out and your vehicle's been broken into. You know, that doesn't happen much in Maine. Well you get an old lady going down the street with her walker with a pocketbook and somebody'll knock her down, kick her and grab her pocketbook and run away with it. Hoping that she's got some money or she's got some prescription meds or something there in the pocketbook that they can use or sell. That doesn't happen much in Maine. And people are are coming to Maine because they have a certain sense of uneasiness about what's happening in our country. And they're nervous. And then you get something like Baltimore, you know, what happened there. And the mayor gets up on her own two hind legs and says, well, we gave the people some room to to destroy. On national TV, she said, we gave the, those people some room to destroy. She was elected by that constituency. She probably wouldn't be elected as mayor in Maine, but she wants people to be able to destroy. But there's a constituency out there that feel they have a right to destroy, and it happens. There's a name for those people and a party that those people belong to. I I looked at a series of photographs taken in Japan in 1945, 
after the war. We sent people in there. Our army sent people into to a BDA, a battle damage assessment. We did the same thing in Vietnam. After a B-52 strike, you go down through there with three or more B-52s, and they all unload in in one uh, in one great big dump. Boy, when all those bombs hit the ground, it looks like the moon. Just bomb craters and a few tree trunks sticking up, and that's it. That's what's left. And then they get a, a helicopter or a light plane to go down through there and do a, take photographs and do a battle damage assessment. But when you go over to do it, the enemy would pop out of their holes and shoot at you. You don't get them all. You just tear things up and you, and you kill a bunch of people because they don't know when it's going to come down. But if you go to people that are down in the tunnels and bunkers, and you know some of those bunkers would collapse and, and the enemy would be killed, but some of them were just in in these surface or near surface bunkers, and they would survive that. And as soon as somebody else flew over, they'd jump out and shoot at you. We went through, and I say we, our country went through and and took battle damage assessments in 1945 in Japan, and recently in Detroit. And they compared Nagasaki in Japan and Hiroshima with Detroit today. Now, Nagasaki and Hiroshima were virtually destroyed. And there are large sections of Detroit that have been virtually destroyed. Now, why is that? Nobody bombed Detroit. But they went through and they ransacked and destroyed a library. And they ransacked and destroyed churches and homes and businesses. Because they were given room to destroy, as the mayor of Baltimore said. Given room to destroy. The government in Detroit didn't do anything about it. And those people, the people that did the destruction, are walking around in Detroit. Or maybe they've moved to other cities where they find a comfortable and safe place to be to do their activities. And that's the situation we've got. And people want to leave those kinds of places and they want to go to better places. And a lot of those people want to be in a safer place. They don't want to be in Tornado Alley. and They don't want to be on some hillside in California that's going to slide into the Pacific Ocean. And they have a cycle out there. They get a hillside and they'll have a, a fire, big brush fire. And those woods out there are resonance. They're like birch here in pine and spruce. That type of, of uh, biological material. They're not really trees. They're just brush. But the brush grows 15 or 20 feet high. It's like a, it's like an alder swamp, but it's bone dry. It, it, the plants are like alders in, in appearance, but they're very dry and they're very resinous. And once they catch fire, it's very difficult to put that fire out. And it burns right down to mineral earth. And then it rains. 
and it washes down through, softens up the ground, and they have landslides. Then they get a little quiver from an earthquake, and that makes makes the loosely compacted soil slide down the hill. They lose a lot of homes. The guy still owns the hillside there where his house was, and they they put in more columns and build another house on the hillside because that's what he owns, and he doesn't doesn't have any any other place to go. And due to government regulations, he can't build in the in the more suitable places to build, so they they build on the side of a hill that's just like they're hanging on by their toenails. Because that's what's available. And those people want to move to a safer place. Well, Maine is a safer place. We don't have earthquakes. We don't have landslides. We don't have volcanoes. We get snow, but the snow melts. That's not a problem, you know. We know what to do with snow in Maine. Don't have any dust storms. It does get cold. Once in a while, if people haven't taken adequate precautions, their pipes freeze. But, you know, overall, Maine is a pretty nice place to visit and a pretty nice place to live. We need to be able to create jobs. We have to create our own jobs. In my case, I created my own job. I work for myself. I've got a tough boss. I work seven days a week a lot of times. Yesterday, I went down to Bangor to the to the Northeast Forestry Expo, big trade show that they have, looking at forestry equipment and everything from from giant harvesters on tracks made in Finland and Sweden and a few made in our country. Great big tires sold by Bangor Tire. All kinds of free handouts and hats, gloves, yardsticks, all kinds of stuff. Literature. And I manned the booth yesterday from noon to three for the Maine Woods Coalition. And Maine Woods Coalition is a group of people that advocates for the Maine Woods. We would like people to be able to live and work in the Maine Woods. There's a whole bunch of people that don't want us to do that. They don't want us to live and work in the Maine Woods. And, you know, I don't know why. Well, actually, I do know why. Because they tell us why. They, uh, you know, they want no human use of our natural resources. I wrote a piece about dioxin the other day, and and they were taking tests. You know, they're really picking on the pulp mills, and they've been successfully. They've been able to to abolish the pulp mill in Millinocket, and they've been able to abolish the paper mill in East Millinocket. And in doing so, they scammed the state of Maine for $17 million. So we're going to have to pay them for years because Kate Street offered to run the mill. We signed a contract to pay them $17 million over the next 10 years. 
And they said, whoops, we're not going to run it anyway. We're not going to run the mill. And they sold the mill to some junk outfit from Canada. They're going to tear it up, haul stuff away. But guess what? We're still going to pay Kate Street $17 million because they offered to run the mill. You shouldn't be paying people $17 million because they made an offer. You should actually read the contract before you sign it. Words mean things, as a famous radio broadcaster has said many, many times. Words mean things. And our government tends to function on emotion rather than facts. And the fact is that the environmental industry doesn't want us in northern Maine. They don't want us to live here. They don't want us to work here. They don't want us to harvest wood here. They don't want to have jobs here. They just want us to go away. It's called rural cleansing. Like ethnic cleansing in other parts of the world. But with a lower body count. So far. Northeast Logging Expo is open today. It's going to be open till 4 o'clock. And if you want to go down and, and go to a good... Uh, go to a good event and see a lot of interesting stuff. They've got giant wood chippers. Tractor trailer hauls them and they stuff the butt end of a tree in there and just it makes a lot of noise. And it it separates the chips and the bark for the most part. And it's quite a quite a thing to watch. And they go right on down to small chippers for the woodlot. If a guy's got a woodlot a lot of people in Maine love the woods. I've got, I live on 107 acres, and I take care of my woods. And this winter was tough. <laughs> Had a lot of blowdowns, and the blowdowns will get used. There'll be firewood, or there'll be bridges for snowmobiles. You know, some it depends on what kind of wood it is. But basically, I've got a lot of wood to clean up. And when I do, I, I put, the, put the brush piles, I take the tops and the limbs and put them into piles in the woods. It makes a, a habitat for small small songbirds and rabbits and squirrels. And, you know, it's shelter for them. So they don't have to worry about the hawks and the ravens. When I take care of the woods, I keep the trails open. And you can walk through my woods and it's like a park. There's you know, pine needles on the ground. No sticks to to uh, step on and crack. And it's good hunting. It's a good place to hunt because you can move quietly without breaking branches. Lots of trails. Many, most of the trails were there before I bought the property. And there was a house there back in the 50s. And uh, it was the Ray Rich Farm in the 50s, and the house burned down Christmas morning one year. And they walked up the road to the neighbor's house because it was you know, it was cold Christmas morning. They lost their house. They walked up the road to the neighbor's, and neighbors took them in and fed them breakfast and let them enjoy the day as much as they could. And some of the gifts were given to the family who had lost their house. 
Mainers sharing as necessary, you know, to help each other. And one of the young fellows who was there that morning was quite disappointed that a couple of his presents went to the other family. He didn't understand at that age the magnitude of what had just happened to them. I don't know if they had insurance, but the house was never rebuilt and they left the area. I just don't know what happened to that family long term. These things happen. So we've got a lot of people who are dependent on society. And a lot of those people don't don't uh, take full advantage of it. I had a neighbor who who uh, lived on $285 a month Social Security. That's it. And he was offered some public assistance, but he owned his house. He had an old trailer on one acre. That's it. He walked down to the lake and fished and caught pickerel. Pickerel was the easiest fish to catch. They'll hit just about anything. A little piece of pork rind on the hook. <clears throat> and he he ate a lot of pickerel. And he grew his own vegetables, cut his own firewood, mended his clothing, and lived on $285 a month. And he called me and he said, I don't have any electricity. He says, I paid my bill. And he used this he would have one little tiny bulb, like a Christmas tree bulb, that he used to read, because it didn't didn't take much electricity. And I went down there, and he didn't have any electricity. He went back through all the way to the box, and the circuit breaker in the box had burnt up. It got corroded because of moisture, and then it it uh, it arced and pitted, and the circuit breaker popped, and you couldn't reset it. It was an old old fashioned type of circuit breaker. Circuit breaker for the trailer was actually in the garage. He had a little cord going from the garage to the trailer. So I went to Lincoln, and uh, there was a new electrician in there at Lincoln, Farrington Electric. And old electricians, like old plumbers, old carpenters, have old stuff. And I had this burnt-up circuit breaker in my hand. I was careful, and I took took it out. I'm not an electrician, but this is a simple simple installation. And I said, you got one of these? He said, geez, where did you find that? And I said, I found it in an old garage, and the guy needs needs power, and you know, I can't find one in the hardware store. He said, yeah, I got one of those. Pawed around, belt back, and there he had one. looked brand new. It had been used, but it looked like it was brand new. And he gave it to me. Somebody needed it. Went out there and put it in. Old fellow broke his glasses and took him into took him into Hannaford's. They had a sale on glasses. They were about seven fifty for a pair of glasses and tried on glasses until he found one that was just right. Got him a pair of glasses. But he couldn't take money from the state <clears throat> because the state wanted him to deed over his property in order to get Meals on Wheels, for example. You know, they bring a meal out, and he can microwave it and heat it up and have a good hot supper. But 
you own property, you have to deed it over to the state in order to get these benefits. I didn't know that. A lot of people were up hard against it, and he was living on $285 a month and making it. He was in his 80s. Then he had a stroke and wound up in a nursing home, and the state ultimately did get his acre and uh, auctioned it off. I don't know what they got the auction. <laughs> if I'd have known it was going to be auctioned off, I might have bought the acre just to be able to influence what happened to it long term. But it didn't go that way. Some of these things happen, and uh, you find out after the fact. There are an awful lot of foreclosed homes in our country, as I mentioned before. And they're not good property managers. I know a nice old farm. Well, actually, a new farmhouse was built around 1990. It's not that old. It's uh, 25 years old. And a huge barn. You can put two tractor trailers in the barn. And the whole, not just the tractor, the whole tractor trailer. And you can drive right in one side and out the other with, with a with a tractor trailer. Second floor in the barn is a big barn. Full basement, and the owner died. And uh, the widow couldn't make the payments, so the son says, Well, just give it back to the bank. So they signed what they call a deed in lieu, deed in lieu of foreclosure. They just gave it back to the bank. Well, there's value there. You know, they could have sold it and gotten something out of it, and still paid off the mortgage. But the bank got the property. The bank flipped it. They weren't interested in owning this property way out in the country, one of these large national banks. So they they handed it over to Fannie Mae, Federal National Mortgage Association. It's the government. And Fannie Mae sent out one of these property manager guys, and they killed the power to the to the house. Well, it was really nice oil furnace in the cellar, and a really nice wood boiler in the cellar, and a washer and a dryer. When they killed the power, killed the power to the sump pump. And I called these people. I got a hold of the lender. The lender gave me the name and phone number of the guy at Fannie Mae who was going to handle this. So what Fannie Mae does is they take and they, they take the property and they contact the investor. Now, the investor is the one that buys a bundle of mortgages. 100 mortgages are sold at an auction, 100 different properties. And they're supposed to be similar properties, like a three-bedroom ranch with a two-car garage and a subdivision. Okay, they'll get 99 of these or 100 of these and auction them. Well, this house went as in a bundle, a bundle of 100 properties, and the investor is Red China. It may it's probably not an individual in Red China. It's somebody in Red China who was a manager at a bank or in 
banks in Red China are the government. You know, just have different names, but it's it's Red China. So you notify them that hey, they shut the power off up here in rural Maine, and the appliances are going to be destroyed because the water is rising in the cellar. It's the snow is melting. There's still frost on the ground, and the only time of the year there's any water in that cellar is is when the frost is coming out of the ground. It leaks in there, and they've got a sump pump, but no power, no sump pump. And the government lets this house be ruined. By the time they finally get around to auctioning the house off, it'll probably be September. And that water's been sitting down there all summer, and the whole house is damp, and you're going to have mold in the house. And it was a beautiful property. Apple trees, gardens, 13 acres, and they're just going to let, the, let it go to, to pieces, I'll say, rather than use any profanity. They're not good property managers. There are vacant, foreclosed homes all over the state of Maine, all over our country, but particularly the state of Maine, because there's a lot of people in Millinocket, East Millinocket, Medway, and surrounding towns, all the way up to Sherman and all the way down to the Glenburn that worked in the mill. And in the mill in Lincoln, the pulp mill blew up. So Lincoln has got half the employees they used to have. And there's foreclosed homes all over the place. There's an outfit in state government called Main State Housing. Main State Housing lends to low-income people for the most part to get them into a home. Now, if Main State Housing would take over these vacant, decent homes for the most part, now some of them are a wreck. Some of them have been trashed by trashy people. And they don't know any better or they don't care. The only one is their check. And they're living in these in these houses and they really let the house go. That's the exception to the rule. Most Mainers of whatever income level they are, are reasonably responsible homeowners. And they take care of their house and maintain it and and, uh, don't let it go to rack and ruin. If Main State Housing would acquire these homes, do whatever slight fix-up is needed, they could sell a decent house for $45,000 to $65,000. And it'd be a home for a low-income family. It, this is not rocket science. It's not hard to figure out if you know where the pieces of the puzzle are. And I talked to the director of Main State Housing personally, and I said, "You guys ought to do this." Because the previous director of Main State Housing was a small-time contractor, and she used Main State housing money to create a whole bunch of quarter-million-dollar condos overlooking Casco Bay down in Portland. Quarter-million-dollar condos are not low-income housing. All of her buddies in the building business got to work on these, and they're going to be high-income folks that inhabit these quarter-million-dollar condos. That's fine if it wasn't done with our tax dollars. 
if an investor wants to build a quarter million dollar condos overlooking Casco Bay, more power to them. We need those folks. We need people with those kinds of incomes because they contribute to our economy. But what Main State Housing is supposed to do is provide loan guarantees for low-income Maine citizens. And they do it. And if you've got a young couple who wants to buy their first home, they go to Main State Housing, they take a few lessons in responsible home ownership. And it's a good program, the way it was designed. But there are huge lost opportunities where people just are losing out. The taxpayers are losing out. Main State Housing employees are losing out. They're at risk of losing their jobs. And you've got, you know, we don't lose these houses because you can actually, a house can go to the point where the most cost-effective thing to do with a house is simply to crunch it, put it in dumpsters and haul it off to the landfill down in West Old Town because it's not economically feasible to rehabilitate the house. It was a nice home. I have a collection of photographs that I'm taking. And uh, one of my one of my future projects, if I ever get around to it, is to create a booklet. And I'm going to take pictures of old fallen down houses. I mean, houses that are literally falling down. There were nice homes at one time. And I'm going to have that photograph, and then I'm and also cellar holes where there used to be a house. And we take that photograph, and underneath it, I'm going to put a quote from an environmentalist where they state what they want. And I think it'll be a good combination. It'll be an eye-opener to those people that look at the booklet. I might just put it together as a in a three-ring binder. Or I might uh, actually have a little, a little pamphlet published sell them for a dollar, give them away or something. I don't know. It's just something I'd like to do. One of those things that that uh, I might get around to doing sometime. We had a house guest here this week, an uh, interesting couple, uh, middle-aged folks here. We, we put them up for the night and had a, had a really enjoyable visit. And the gentleman and his wife belonged to the Bruderhof. Bruderhof in German is brother house. And they are like Mennonites or Amish people, but they don't restrict their membership to to uh, original Amish people. You know, in original Amish families, they trace their lineage back just like uh, the Israelis do. You know, they can trace their lineage back to, to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they know... <laughs> They know the lineage. They're really good at it. And the Mormons uh, have a huge uh, family tree uh, database in Utah. And anybody can go in there and look up their family tree. And of course, they try to recruit you to be a Mormon at the same time, but it's open to the public, and you can do that. I've got a friend that went in there and traced his family tree back to the into the, the year 1200. 
approximately. That's nearly a thousand years now. And he, uh, it was fascinating. His, his name spelling changed several times during that time. But uh, they were, most of those old records were baptismal certificates. And they traced, they showed on the baptismal certificate the name of the child, names of his parents, and the names of his grandparents right there on a single sheet of paper. So they, uh, and they're able to go just follow those back. It's pretty easy once if you have the records. And I showed him this visiting couple uh, some photos that we have on the wall in our dining room. And it's my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, Pat and I, and on my father's side, and on my mother's side, got my grandparents, and of course, my parents. All those people were married 50 years or more. My great-grandparents were more, married more than 50 years. My grandparents, my parents, wife and I were married 50 years last August. My wife's parents married 50 years, and on her side of the family, uh, her predecessors didn't live that long. You know, they died one way or another, not because of of divorce or any dysfunction in the family. They simply didn't didn't live that long. So, but the Bruderhof couple were were impressed at the fact that I had hanging on the wall. five generations of people that were married uh, 50 years. And photographs of these people. I mean, this, these old, those old Swedish photographs, are, you know, they look like Civil War era photographs that we see in our country. And most of the men had beards. And uh, most in Sweden, having a beard is important in the wintertime. They don't freeze your face. <laughs> Sweden is even colder than Maine. They were interested in the fact that there was a new Sweden up in northern Maine, and there's a lot of Swedish attraction people up there. So we're uh, we've got a lot of young people coming to Maine, and the usual pattern is our young people leave at the age of 25, and the couple returns at the age of 55 when they're empty nesters. The kids are gone, got their own families, gone off to college, one thing or another, and mom says, let's get out of this rat race, let's go home. And they do. And what they want to buy is that 12, 25-acre farm, 50 acres, 60 acres, 100 acres. i got 156 acres right now. You can, from the home, you look out through the window, looking right across at Mount Katahdin. 156 acres. And the brook that goes through the property drops 40 feet in elevation. Well, that means two things to me. One, it's pretty. You can sit beside the babbling brook and read a book. Two, a 40-foot drop in elevation means that you can have an open-face hydro station and run it with one or more uh, General Motors single-wire alternators and produce electricity. You can charge your batteries with an open hydro 
generator. And with 40 foot change in elevation and about an inch and a half plastic pipe, you don't want to use half inch plastic pipe or three quarter inch over a long drop because you lose a lot of internal friction, uh, lose a lot of the energy due to internal friction, and you don't generate as much power. You have less pressure at the outlet. But if you've got inch and a half pipe from the top and a screen to keep the leaves out, they go drop it down, and then at the last six feet, you go from inch and a half to three-quarter inch to half inch to your nozzle. Now you've got a lot of pressure at the nozzle you know, and a high rate of flow, and you've got an open-wheel uh, generator, a turbine, that runs that that one-wire General Motors alternator. And you can charge batteries with it, run lights, power your house. You know, you're not going to run an electric clothes dryer. <laughs> I mean, electric clothes dryers are the biggest waste of energy in the in the state. You know, get a gas dryer. It's uh, electric clothes dryers are expensive to run. Run your power bill up. They're not as expensive as they used to be, but they're it's very inefficient way to dry clothes. Last week I I spoke about the growing and underground economy, a lot of people are surviving by doing odd jobs. You've got a carpenter with some skills, he can build a deck for you or patch the roof or install a couple of new windows. You know, and a lot of people are looking for work. And, and I mentioned Bruce Springsteen's album called Youngstown. And I sang part of it. I promise I won't do that again. First, first and only time I ever ever sang on the show, and I promise I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> so, hope I didn't scare too many people. But the song goes, "My sweet daddy, I'm sinking down here in old Youngstown, about Youngstown, Ohio. The jobs are gone, and there's not a lot of opportunities for somebody that's worked in a steel mill all his life, and the mill shuts down." Paper makers uh, are stubborn, resourceful, reliable people, and they are stubborn. I know I worked worked with them, but that skill, uh, aside from the character, the character is a, is a valuable thing, and they they are reliable people because they go to work eleven to seven and they show up on time. That's a huge thing. One of my sons said, I sure would like to hire people that wanted to work five days a week. These people work seven days a week on a rotating schedule, for the most part. And when they say they're going to be there, they'll show up. That's huge in this this country, in this economy today. And if we would just ease up and let people come here, let business come to Maine. Yesterday I was at the Maine Woods Exposition. And the environmentalists want to take 3.2 million acres away from free enterprise, make turn it into federal ground, and nobody will ever produce 
manufactured a product out of that place. National parks are a disaster for the area where they live. Now, you got a whole bunch of people that like the pretty coast of Maine, and they want to go look at Somme Sound, and they want to go to Thunderhole at at uh, Acadia down there in Bar Harbor. It's something to do. But there aren't a lot of people that want to go up into the middle of the North Woods, wander around between the trees and the boulders on the east slope of Katahdin, Baxter Park, and around the east branch of the Penobscot. I've been down through there. I've canoed that a few times. And I canoed Saboa Stream, which runs into the east branch. And I canoed down around, well, we carried around uh, Bowling Falls and and, uh, the hulling machine. (laughs) It's called a hulling machine because it will destroy your hull. And uh, there are several carries that you just have to carry. There's one there where there's two carries only about half a mile apart. And the best thing to do is just pick up your stuff and carry it the whole way, the half mile, and put back in rather than rather than carry around one carry, paddle a couple hundred yards, unload, and carry around the other one. And once you've got that canoe up on your shoulders, you might as well just go for it, go that half a mile. And I believe that's between the hulling machine and uh, Bowling Falls. But that's a it's a pretty river. But who's gonna want to go there to look at at Mount Katahdin from the east? I mean the fishermen would still like to go there, but they can't camp there anymore. Because the landowner doesn't want public use. You can walk in there and you can take pictures, but you can't put a bear bait out there. You can't have a camp there. You can't camp there. You can paddle down the river. I mean, it, the law says you can paddle down the river. And you can fish in the river. But you can't camp there. you got to make it in one day. No camping on her land. A lot of people got their eyes opened down there in Bangor yesterday. It was It was a really impressive group. And a lot of small loggers. And they came, it's the Northeast Logging Expo. It's not just Maine. It's not just the North Woods. It's the Northeast. We have loggers who log in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, in New York, Vermont, New Hampshire. All came over to Maine to go to this thing. It was interesting to talk to these people and to listen to what's happened to them. Vermont is, has got what they call Prop 21, which severely limits what people can do with their property. It's the law. We've got people moving here from Vermont because we have more freedom for a while. But that exists around the perimeter of the, the old Lurk Territory. And we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Paul LePage gets out of office and they put some progressive back in there from either party. You know, it's Katie barred the door because they gave Lurk 
the opportunity to be bigger, stronger, and meaner. And that's the law. They get the right punch in there, and they're going to crack down like you would not believe. The opportunity was given to them, and the legislators were afraid to vote for it. They did not want a recorded vote, and they didn't have one. They just said, I, and the I's sounded like there were more than the nays, and there was no recorded vote. And Lork became bigger, stronger, and meaner. And they told the governor that it was a good thing. The governor signed it. Wish we had maintained contact. It wasn't through lack of opportunity. You know, I spoke directly to the governor in Brewerman and said, uh, Sir, I says, you've got to restore your contact with rural Maine because we're losing it. Yeah, 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 we're going to do that. But he's a busy man. He's trying to reform the tax structure. He wants to gradually, over a long time, eliminate the income tax in the state of Maine. And the progressives are just screaming, we can't do that, we need all that money. And the people that vote the progressives in Oh, geez, you can't cut back. You know, this 24-year-old guy who has never worked, able-bodied man, I need that money to buy my beer and my cigarettes and get my tattoos. I need that money. I deserve to have it. I've always had it before, and you can't take it away from me. Well, that's what we've got. It's the situation we have created. When Lyndon Johnson created the Grand Society half a century ago, he set the stage for Baltimore. And the people who inhabit Baltimore today feel that they are entitled to a government check for their entire life. And they elected a mayor who agrees with them. And the mayor says, you have to give these people room to destroy If you're on the board of directors of CVS Pharmacy, are you going to build another CVS Pharmacy in Baltimore? Are you crazy? The only thing left on the shelves in that pharmacy, when it was all said and done, was sunscreen and Father's Day cards. Because the people that ransacked that CVS pharmacy had absolutely no need for sunscreen or Father's Day cards. You think about that. The uh, President of the United States stated when he was campaigning what he wanted to do. And he said it for all the world to hear. And they take this down from the Internet, but it keeps popping back up. It's like playing a whack-a-mole. You know, you bang this ball coming up out of the ground. Whoop, there's another one pops up over here, and you bang it down, and another one pops over there. Well, we're playing whack-a-mole here, and we're going to play the words of Barack Hussein Obama. I hope this takes off and goes. Continue to rely 
only on our military in order to achieve the national security objectives that we've set. We've got to have a civilian national security force that's just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded. All right. I'm going to repeat that for just a moment. I'm hoping that uh, people can hear it, listen to it, and remember it. Because this is what we face. The Barack Hussein Obama administration has bought 330, no, 3.3 billion rounds of ammunition. And they say they need it for practice. That's enough to kill a third of the people on the entire planet. And it's not for handing out to our allies overseas. It's not for the military, because the military is declining very fast. The Army is smaller than it was in 1940, before Pearl Harbor. Think about that. The Navy is decommissioning ships at a huge rate. And they're taking people two-thirds of the way through through their career, 15 years in the military, and they're saying, "Eh, we're not going to pay you a pension. We're going to give you a check. Thank you for your service. Bye. And you're done. There is discontent in our nation. It is intentional that we have discontent in our nation. And when the these people elect, elect mayors who say that we have to give them room to destroy... At some point, you're going to have to say, okay, quit destroying stuff, okay? This is the Barack Hussein Obama's plan to deal with that. We cannot continue to rely only on our military in order to achieve the national security objectives that we've set. We've got to have a civilian national security force that's just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded. There it is, in his own words. Look at the, look at Baltimore. Look at Detroit, as compared with Nagasaki, in 1945. It is stunning to see those. And if you Google Detroit, Nagasaki, 1945, Detroit was a beautiful city in 1945 with concert halls and libraries and museums and a high standard of living and cranking out automobiles left and right. Then they elected a bunch of Democrats. And the unions elected them. The unions didn't do this to us intentionally. They just didn't understand what would be the result. There aren't any cars produced in Detroit anymore. And you look at Today, Detroit looks like a war zone. It looks like what Sarajevo looked like. And it's it's a tragic thing, what's happening to our country. Maine is one of the last places where we have freedom. And we've got to hold on to it. We've got a bunch of people. And I went down and visited my friend Wayne Leach. 
Wayne is dying of brain cancer. He was a great patriot. He's still a great patriot. And he still is aware of what's happening. And I said, politicians are like a bunch of cockroaches. Shine a bright light of truth with them and they scatter like a bunch of cockroaches. And he got a big grin on one side. And Wayne can't speak anymore. And I, I pray for Wayne to ease his passage. Pray for the Lord to ease Wayne's passage is what I meant to say. Well, uh-oh, fire department going by the house. Well, it's 10 o'clock. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network. Conscience of Maine, broadcast today in Maine on WXME. Trying to scroll up to it here. Broadcast today in WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ 94.7 in Monticello, all the way down to Danforth, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook, in Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Be safe. That water is still cold. Don't get in it. God bless. Wise men follow him. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.